Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. years I've um, I've really spent a lot of more time with Jesus and I've seen that as I spend more time with him he's uh, shown me more of his fruit and um, I've noticed that I'm a softball coach and in the last few years I've noticed my competitive level go down a notch and more laid back and just calm about things except when there's a medal involved <laughs> And all of a sudden, I don't think I'm representing Jesus and showing the fruits of the Spirit. (laughs) Yesterday, we were playing a game, and there is a medal involved. We're playing for gold today. But um, there was not a great call. And of course, I was right. And (laughs) so I had to let the umpire, who follows me on Facebook and sees how much I love Jesus, uh, I had to let him know that he made a bad call. And that there's no, like, it's just like a red light, or not a red light, a green light. Uh, when I, I see a bad call, I feel the injustice, and it burns inside of me, and I have to let him know the truth. And so uh, I didn't share Jesus's uh, love in that moment. And uh, so as I was reading this morning about the fruits of the Spirit, uh, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, good times. And so I, um, I didn't really show patience, I didn't show um, gentleness, didn't so, show self-control. Maybe goodness is debatable, <laughs> but the, I've realized that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't just come to us. It comes from that spending time with Him and being close with Him. And yes, we can still have moments of reacting. I think that's normal for us to do, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully it's not just me. Um, But there's also that taking a step back after and having the humility. And I did apologize to him after. And I think he kind of admitted he was wrong. Uh, (laughs) But there is this, uh, when we do spend that time with him, there is this gentleness that comes with it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And we'll see if it works this afternoon. Um, But let's let's pray. And I just encourage you to spend that time with him, abiding in him. He says in John 15, as we abide in him, he is the true vine and we are the branches. And when we are connected with him, that's when we will see his fruit. God, we, uh, ushers can come forward too at this time as we prepare for offering. God, we thank you that you are our true vine and you are all these things that we sang about. We can trust you. You are our true guide, our shepherd, and when we are connected with you, we see the fruit of your spirit, God. And I pray that we will, um, we will spend that time with you so that we will show your fruit and show your fruit to others in our family in this world. Jesus, we love you and we pray over this offering. We thank you for this form of worship where we can choose to honor you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Just one quick announcement. Going forward this summer, we have a new sermon series that's called Stories. And so we're going to be sharing stories of the Bible. And then also some of your stories are going to be shared. So I'm really looking forward to that. 
Next week, let's see if I get this right, the Bazzini is going to make an appearance. The great, oh, I forgot, the great Bazzini. <laughs> and it's not one that you're going to want to miss because your kids aren't going to want to miss it. So come uh, next Sunday for that, and the kids will be in the service with us. And I think that is everything. Kids can be dismissed to your classes, and let's welcome David. Thank you, Carissa. Um, it's interesting. I, I love that story, and I love your reference to John 15. Um, on Thursday, uh, normally I'd be leading our membership classes, and we've only got one left next week, but um, uh, this week I snuck into the Bible study class, and we were studying from John 16, uh, which is obviously right after John 15. And I love the connection you made. I don't know where, there you are, Carissa. I love the connection you made, well, first of all, in John 15, talking about abiding in the vine. And really, that's what we're called to do. We're, we're called to tether ourselves to the Father and to, to feed off the Holy Spirit, feed off his word, and let the things, the fruit that comes out of our lives come from that, stem from that. And then in, in verse 16, in chapter 16, it's, it's talking, it's Jesus talking to his disciples about, you know, I'm going. I'm, I'm not going to stick around, but I've got a plan for you. I've, I've got something even better, and that's the Holy Spirit. And it's that direct connection to the Father that can flow, flow through us, and I, I love that. Good stuff. Um, today we're going to carry on with our praying, and today we're going to be praying for Celebrate Recovery. And this was a big week for Celebrate Recovery. We celebrated 19 years here in Ridge Meadows, so you can clap for that. Um, I was going to say, if you get an invitation to go to a Celebrate Recovery uh, anniversary, um, you need to jump on it. And, and now I'm saying that, well, first of all, I would say that because you you won't regret it. It's an incredible experience. But now I think it's getting more and more exclusive. It was a packed house on on um, the th Friday. On Friday, days are all blurring together. Um, and so you might not get an invitation in the future. But if you find a way in, uh, especially next year is going to be 20 years. It's incredible. And the thing I, I don't want to put us down because I love you guys. But the thing that I that stands out to me most is when these people sing. It's like they know what they've been set free from. And there's this, this vibe of celebration that gives you goosebumps. Uh, there's a couple of parts where I think even the, the worship leader was getting a little choked up because he was so overwhelmed by the participation of the congregation. And it's like, this is, this is, what we're, this is an opportunity we have to show our adoration for the Father. And they do not miss the opportunity. It's a beautiful thing. Um, Today, we're going to pray for Celebrate Recovery going forward. And so as we do, I want to invite you to stand where you're at and pray out. Um, just one more point of context. We, on Saturday nights, I hope this isn't too much information, but I've started to realize that on Saturday nights, we don't get to do what we do here quite as well. Because for, for those of you here, I expect to see you here in five years. Right? There's a, a, a journey that we get to take together for hopefully for a long time. So discipleship is a thing. It's more of a thing. On Saturday nights, quite often we, we get people uh, for a season of time. Sometimes it's 90 days. Sometimes it's five months. Sometimes it is a couple of years. But quite often it's, it's more of a, a short time. And so we haven't been able to figure out discipleship 
on Saturday nights as well. Thank goodness for people like Pastor Larry, uh, guys like Cliff Kelly, who uh, or the the Friesens who come in and they they are pastoring these guys in a way that I can't. But what we've started to do is we've started to point towards Celebrate Recovery. And the things that we, we love about it, Celebrate Recovery is the same in Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know why I said Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia to, to Kitimat, to wherever, wherever you go to a Celebrate Recovery meeting, it's going to follow a very similar standardized format. And we love the program. And it's something we endorse wholeheartedly. And so it's something we want to pray for today. So if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads, closing your eyes. And again, if you feel like standing and praying a blessing or a prayer for Celebrate Recovery, you go for it. Father, we pray that your name will continue to be taught about and, and praised and adored in these Celebrate Recovery meetings. Lord, I pray that you would send the workers. We know the harvest is plenty. And so I pray, Father, you continue to send uh, people with a passion for uh, passion for you and a passion for recovery. And you would send the workers to help continue with this ministry. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, well, today we're going to bite off a large chunk of uh, really detailed scripture. And I'm going to lean again one last time on a, a short video in just a moment to help paint a picture of, of what it is we're going to be talking about. Um, now, we're going to be talking about the tabernacle. And, and this chunk of scripture actually spans before what we were talking about last week uh, with the golden calf. God starts to paint a picture of what he wants, the instructions for the tabernacle. And then after the whole golden calf instant, miraculously, God doesn't change his mind. He, he wants us to carry it out. And so the next section of scripture is about the actual building of the tabernacle. And so today we're going we're gonna to learn a lot more about the tabernacle, and it really does stitch together this chunk of narrative that started in Genesis and, and will carry on through to Revelation. Um, when we talk about the tabernacle, tradition holds that it took up a, about an acre of property. So it's a fairly large structure. And it starts with the outer courtyard, which was this, um, I, I will kind of go through this again after, but I want to give you a, a brief overview, with this almost like curtained off fence around the acreage of property. And then within that, you've got the tent of meeting, which covers two significant places, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. So in your mind, start to kind of picture three different places that we're talking about within when we talk about the tabernacle. It's the outer courtyard, it's the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Now the symbolism of the, of the tabernacle is just, it's just so rich. And in fact, um, uh, it's something that I, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole when I was studying over this week and a little bit last week. And, and I started to see, I don't know if they're conflicting um, ideas when it comes to the symbolism or if it's just so rich that there's all these different things they're drawing from. But you're going to find they're drawing from two ideas. One is that the tabernacle is a bit of a picture of Mount Sinai. And we talked about this last week where the outer courtyard is like the grounds at the foot of the mountain. It's, it's this, this 
holy place, but then there's this halfway up the mountain. We could call that the holy place. And some people were invited to come halfway up the mountain. But then the peak of the mountain is the holy of holies. And it's this picture of this journey from this holy place to the holiest of holies and this encounter with God. So that's one um, kind of thread of symbolism you're going to see when it comes to the tabernacle. The other is a picture of Eden. And this is one where I should lean on my notes here. The tabernacle was also comparable to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had been sent out of the garden to the east, and the entrance was blocked by a cherubim angel. The angel protected sinful mankind from entering God's all-holy presence with the garden. Similarly, the entrance to the tabernacle is from the east. There were images of cherubim angels at the entrance to the holy place, the entrance to the holy of holies veil, and above the Ark of the Covenant itself, and God dwelled within the holy of holies. And beyond that, beyond that symbolism, the, the theme that I want to draw out and that I'll come back to at the end is that the tabernacle is this return to the relationship that was started in the Garden of Eden. If you'll remember, God's ideal for us was to walk with us, to literally walk alongside us. When he created his perfect paradise, it was God and his creation walking together. And the tabernacle is one of the first things we see where God returns, his presence. He just, he desperately wants to be with us. And the tabernacle is a provision of sorts where his presence can dwell among us. You're going to see the Hebrew word actually means, tabernacle means like this dwelling place. And God wants to be with us and he sees, we see that he uses the tabernacle as this way to be with us again. All right, so we're going to watch this short video and then we're going to get right into the text. And if you want to look ahead, we're going to be in Exodus 40 today. All right, so let's watch this video. Tabernacle, Hamishkan. The Hebrew word means dwelling place. It was where God dwelled with his people, and its elements show us how to relate with God. After delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God gave them detailed instructions on how to build this dwelling. Once constructed, the Lord descended on the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. Curtains separated the whole tabernacle from the rest of the Israelite encampment. In this courtyard was the tabernacle's largest piece of furniture, the altar. A wooden box covered with bronze. The altar was shaped as a square, measuring approximately seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. From top to bottom, it stood about four and a half feet. Hollow space inside the box allowed priests to insert coals. Above was a bronze grating where priests would lay animals for sacrifice. A horn of one piece with the altar stood at each corner. Four bronze rings under the ledge allowed one to insert carrying poles so the Israelites could transport the altar. Between the altar and the tent of meeting was a bronze laver. 
priests had to cleanse their hands and feet here before offering sacrifices or entering the tent. Within the inner tent stood one of the most recognized elements of the whole tabernacle, the menorah, a lampstand with three branches that rose on each side to create a total of seven lamps. This solid gold lampstand weighed about 75 pounds. Each lamp was a small cup that the priest would fill with oil to fuel the light. Each branch in the middle of the shaft had almond blossoms. The menorah served a most practical purpose. It was the only source of light in the tent, an eternal light that was never to go out. Also in the tent stood a wooden table covered with gold. On it was to always remain the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence symbolizes God's desire to be with his people. Incense was to burn continuously on the altar. God instructed the priests to replenish the incense every evening and morning. A curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The menorah, the altar of incense, and the bread of the presence were all in the holy place, but outside this veil. Like the curtains covering the tent of meeting, this veil was blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubim, a kind of angel. Beyond the veil at the far end of the tabernacle was the ark. The ark was a wooden box covered with gold. It was nearly four feet long. Its width and height were about two feet, three inches. Like the altar, the ark had rings and poles so the Israelites could carry it as they traveled. Within the ark were the two stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Later, it contained a sample of manna and the rod that bloomed to reinforce Aaron's leadership. The mercy seat was the ark's lid and features prominently on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. At each end stood a cherub facing the other with its wings outspread. This cover was made of solid gold. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat symbolizing that the nation's sins were covered for another year. While only the high priest would see it, the mercy seat was the key symbol of atonement that God would forgive his people. Though daily sacrifices on the altar were necessary for payment of sin, it was only through the mercy seat on the day of atonement that the stain of sin was washed away. While priests had to make repeated sacrifices, one man offered a sacrifice to atone for sin once and for all. When Jesus, the Messiah, died, he sprinkled his own blood before God, securing atonement forever for all who would trust in him. Jesus cleanses us, makes us pure, and enables us to rightly approach the Lord. He tore the veil that kept distance between Israel and the Lord. God dwelled among the Israelites through a tent. Now, he dwells within his people through the Spirit. And there's an advertisement for Chosen People Ministries. All right, so hopefully with that as a kind of a background image, as we teach through the text here, um, you'll be able to kind of imagine some of these things. Um, one of the things, and I'm sure some of you scholars have different uh, opinions about things, but I was looking at the, the laver or the basin, 
and it looked like the bowls were all haphazardly in there. I can't imagine that anything would be out of order in this space. And so I, I didn't like that it was kind of half in and there were some other bowls sitting around, but uh, that was just me. All right, let's go to verse 1 of chapter 40, and it goes like this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. So even though they start to get into the description here of, of some of the arrangement of the elements within the tabernacle, I think the thing I want to start with here is that it has been a year since Israel was freed from Egypt. So this, this marks kind of one year. It's on the first day of the first month is when this is all supposed to get set up. So it's a year almost probably to the day of their freedom from Egypt. And if you haven't been walking through this with us, just a reminder that Israel was held captive in Egypt for centuries until it was enough, enough was enough, and God went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. It took some convincing. He had to send a bunch of plagues. And this is all happening before Israel's eyes. They saw God do what he said he would do. Plague after plague would infect Egypt until finally the final plague where the firstborn was killed, but the firstborn of, Egypt, uh, of Israel was spared. Pharaoh finally relented and said, just go. Get out of here. Take, take off. And so they were prepared and they left. And you'll remember that Pharaoh changed his mind. He wanted them back, and so he pursued them. They crossed through the Red Sea miraculously, and then the Red Sea collapsed on their pursuers, and they were totally set free from Egypt. This is just a year ago. And then once on the other side, you've got millions of people who needed food and water, and the water they came to was bitter until God did a miracle and, and fixed the water. And they were hungry until God did miracles and fed them. And so they've had quite the year. It's been quite the year of deliverance. And you'll remember, it leads to this point where they get to Mount Sinai. And God has this encounter with Moses, but really with, with his children, with all of Israel. There's this physical manifestation of God on the mountaintop, at the, at the peak of Mount Sinai, where Moses is invited up to. And there, God gives them the way that they can be right with him. He gives them the law. He gives them the path that they should follow. And all of this, like, all of these things, you just think this is evidence after evidence. This somewhere we're going to be sharing testimonies. We're going to be hearing people's stories of what God has done in their life. And this is their evidence for God living large in their life. And Israel has this collective testimony that is only a year old. It's, it's fresh. I, my memory is not great, but uh, I can remember a year ago. I can remember what was happening a year ago. And, they see, and these things are very memorable. And yet, we see this moment where they lose their minds, and while Moses is still up on the mountain, they create this idol, which they start to worship as the God who set them free. And... God's about to end it all for them. Moses pleads with them. And eventually God kind of carries out his promise, his covenant promise with Israel. 
and they carry on. And, and from there, they're given this picture of this tabernacle where God will come and dwell with them. Let's carry on in verse 6. It says, You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. We see this word consecrate and holy uh, used over and over here. And, and both have similar meaning and purpose. Consecrate means to set apart as special. We often will pray before uh, our weekend services that God would consecrate this time, that this time that we have together here would be set apart. It wouldn't be just a part of our day-to-day -day or our running around or hustle and bustle. There'd be something special and set apart about this time. In the same way, Holiness is this set-apartness. It's this, like, it's, it's this next level, right? And, and when, we, when we set aside something for God, it is, it's made holy. It's not this magical transference or anything, but it's, it's, it's really the same idea. It's, it's set apart and it's made holy. Let's look on at verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on, and put on Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put their coats on him and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. A couple of things here. Remember that the way things were rolled out originally is God's vision for Israel is they would all be priests. They would be priests to all the nations. And so this has kind of been clawed back a little bit to, clawed back is not a good term, but the Levites were now going to be the priests of Israel. And that came about, you'll remember, it's ironic to me that Aaron gets to lead the, the people this way because Aaron was the one left in charge when the whole golden calf thing went down. And he let God down. He let, he let God's people down. And yet God redeemed him and he's, he's, he's set him aside for this. But you'll also notice there was this time last week we were talking about when Moses kind of called out in the middle of, of all these people who uh, were falling away, were doing the opposite of what they were supposed to be doing. Moses called out and he says, you know what, who's not okay with this? Who's going to come with me and do this right? And it was the, the tribe of Levi who came. And so they, from that point, were set up as the priests of Israel. Now, there's a full description of the anointing and the preparation that you can find in Leviticus, Leviticus 8 and 9. But we're going to carry on in verse 17. And here... We're going to kind of work what I would call it in backwards order of the, the actual construction of the tabernacle. So we're not going to start with the outer courts and move our way to the Holy of Holies. We're actually going to start with the tent of meeting and what's in there. You'll see it right here. Verse 17 says this. 
In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this tent, the tent of meeting, it covers both the holy place and the holy of holies. So those are both enclosed in the tent. Let's carry on to the next part of that. Verse 20, he says, He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the ark was both the symbolic and literal representation of the presence of God. And all this setting up was happening before God's presence actually fell there. So it's this preparation time. This was going to be where God lived. And it's interesting, we were talking about this, I don't know if it was in the Bible study this week, you guys can remind me if, 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 if I've got this right or not. We were talking, yeah, it was, it was a Bible study on Thursday. And we were talking about the difference that it must be, that we probably don't even notice because we've only ever lived in the time after the Holy Spirit has come. He's come in his fullness and he lives within believers. He lives in us. And so we have this, this, we walk differently because God can talk directly to us. He doesn't need to speak through a prophet to us. He can talk to us directly. He walks with us. We walk with him. He's a part of our lives. Whereas before Jesus, before Jesus tore the veil and created access to the Father, before the Holy Spirit came, God dwelled in a, a, a specific place. Actually, we had a really good conversation about God's omnipresence. And God is always omnipresent, but then when Jesus walked the earth, he was, there was a limitation to his presence. And I, I know that sounds scandalous that I would say Jesus was limited in anything, but he was God incarnate. He was God with skin on. And so he was in one place at one time. And almost similarly, God's presence would dwell in this place. This is where God lived. Verse 22. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. So here we talk a little bit more about the, the symbolism here. We've got the, the table of showbread. And I find this super interesting. This table, excuse me, the bread symbolized uh, a couple of things, one of which uh, were the 12 tribes of Israel. So you will have seen 12 of those round, flat loaves of bread on the table. Now, the Old Testament showbread placed on the table in the tabernacle provides also a wonderful picture of Jesus. He describes himself as the bread of life. Jesus is holy before God, and he is the one who provides true sustenance, and he is always present. And this is important, that the, the bread would be refreshed. It wouldn't get old and moldy. They would bring in new bread, and it was this ever-present um, system. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Let's carry on in verse 24. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting 
opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, for symbolism, this lamp reminded Israel of the tree of life, further identifying the tabernacle as this new Eden. It carries on that metaphor of it as, as the new Eden. But it also, when we look at uh, the comparison to Mount Sinai, the light represented God's face. And it's, it's oh, sorry, the light represented God's face as can be seen in Aaron's priestly prayer of Numbers 6, verse 25, where he says, the Lord make his face shine upon you. There's this sh literal shininess to God's face represented in the, in the light, in the lamp. Verse 26, he put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now here there's a couple of interesting things here. Um, this recalled how God had appeared to Moses under this blurry cloud of smoky fire. So again, this is this picture of ascending up Mount Sinai and now getting into the clouds. It recreated God's glorious theophany, this appearance of God himself. Now, I had never thought of this. Uh, incense also blurred the priest's vision so that they would not see the all-holy God. It was almost a protective measure. It's also signified humanity's ascent to God's holy mountain of heaven. And we're going to see more of that kind of symbolism in just a moment. Verse 28, he put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Now this screen, I, I, the, these notes might not go best here, but we need to understand that, again, there's this journey. When it comes to the outer courts, everything there would be um, inlaid or prepared with some metals that were precious or semi-precious, like they would be like bronze um, handle holders. What are those? Those rings. The, the things and some of the, the, the adornments will be of a, a little less precious metal. Then when you get into the holy place, you start to get into the silvers and the more precious metal. And then obviously when you get to the holy of holies, things there were the most precious of metals. And again, it, it represents this journey from kind of this general outer courtyard experience to this intimacy where God's presence rested. Let's move on to verse 29. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the green offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. This was a fire that had been lit by God and was maintained. And it symbolized his presence at the new Sinai. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. Let's move on to verse 30. <laughs> he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and he put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting. And when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, this ritual cleansing was uh, a part of this kind of preparation. And, and yes, it was good that they would have clean hands and clean feet. But along with that was this cleansing of spirit, this preparation of their spirit for being in God's presence. And this became an important part of the entering into the holy place. Verse 33, it says, And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work.
The tabernacle is this earthly model of a heavenly reality. I think it was last week we talked about Moses' ascension and the elders' ascension up the mountain. And the elders could look at God, but really they could only see the footstool of God. They couldn't lift their eyes to fully gaze upon the king of kings. But even this footstool of God we see mentioned later in this picture of heaven and what heaven would be like. And here we see this earthly model of a heavenly reality. The elements in the tabernacle start to give us a, a picture or a model of what we will see one day when we're with the Father in heaven. So only those who had been specially chosen by God, the Levites, could enter the outer courts. But then, only those who were from the Levitical family of Aaron could touch the pieces of furniture. There, they were, there were only a very specific group of people who could actually interact with the things like the, the altar and the, and the laver. And whenever the tabernacle was moved, they would carry it. They would use those rings on the sides of these elements, and they would slide these poles in there and carry them by the poles. They weren't meant to touch anything. They were too holy. This emphasized the holiness of God. All right. Now the temple, excuse me, now the tabernacle is built. It's been built according to the pattern and instructions given by God. So here in verse 34, we see what happens next. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. To me, this is the beginning of something amazing. Where first God's glory fills the tabernacle. The, the people of Israel, they followed the instructions, they did what they were told, and now God's presence, His glory falls. And we saw in that picture this cloud in the daytime resting like a pillar over the tent of meeting and directly over the ark in the Holy of Holies. And it says here, oh, I... This is why using technology is difficult because I've lost my spot now. Um, it says here... Here we go, we're saved. That God was pleased. He was happy with them. Which again to me is this incredible thing because it's just not that long ago where Israel did the opposite of what they were called to do and they did the opposite of loving God first. They didn't have Him first and they started to wash, worship idols in His place. And yet God forgave them and we see now that God is pleased with their obedience. They did what they were supposed to do. And he was pleased and he came and he dwelled in that place. The same thing happened when Solomon completed and dedicated the temple years later. Where they made a, a permanent structure of the tabernacle in form of a temple. And then we see in the verses 36 to 38 that God and his glory, it abides with Israel in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So not only does he fill the temple, but he continues to fill the temple or the tabernacle. 
the holy place. He, his presence continues to stay there. This is not a one-time theophany where he, he comes, make it, makes an appearance, and then takes off. This is now his presence in and among the camp of Israel. And now he is going to lead Israel. When it's time for them to move, the cloud goes. And they're just meant to follow this cloud. His presence moves and they move along with it. The book of Exodus ends with great hope and trust in God. We see at the beginning of Exodus is the story of, of God making a plan to set his people free. Then he does what he promised to do. And even through all of their ups and downs, we finish with this great hope that he is with them, he is for them, and that he is going to lead them. And to me, that's just so beautiful. And, and, and Israel needs this. They're in the middle of this desolate desert. They've got enemies all around them. And they're not really equipped. They're, they're weak. weak of, they're physically weak, but they're weak of spirit. They're liable to sin and, and rebellion. And so they need this God in their lives. Let's read from Graham Cole. Here's a, a quote. It says, The book ends with the fulfillment of the promise of Exodus 29-45. Yahweh is living among his people. The theology of, his, of the presence of God has become the fact of his presence. So it goes from just an idea to a reality that he is with them. I want to invite the worship team up. But here's where I want to really give focus to the, the thing I want us to take away with us. Here's a funny tie-in. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And to me, this is one of the most powerful verses I can read because when I think of myself as a sinner, I, I've, I've got a, a long list to work with. But when I think about my lowest, most embarrassing, dark moment that I would never share with you, because it would probably get me fired, I, when I think about when I was at my worst, my worst, lowest moment, God looked at me and said, I love that guy so much that I will die for him. I will send my one and only son to die for him. It's a, it's a crazy thought. But we see this in action in the history of the Israelites, where Israel was given everything. They were set free, miraculously. They've got this very recent memory of what God's done for them. And yet they decide, ah, you know what, let's make our own God and give him the glory for setting us free. We're going to worship this bronze cow. And despite the fact that this was a huge slap in the face to the king of kings, the one who actually delivered them. He chose to forgive them. He chose to make a way to be with them. And to me, this is mind-boggling. But it also goes against what we often will default to, where sometimes we picture God as this old man who created the earth and is a little bit bitter about the way we treat the earth. And he's aloof, and he's just kind of sitting up there grumbling about what twits we are here on earth. That's not our God. Our God created us with intention and purpose. And he loves us to the point where he is desperate to be with us. 
His, his first plan was to literally walk with us in the garden. Then he comes up with this, okay, well, you know what? That didn't work. They screwed that up. I'm going to come and be with them in the tabernacle. Later, he, he came and dwelled with them in the temple. But the best part was when he sent his son to be with us face to face. And then we read in John 16 that that wasn't even his best. His best was that Jesus would go and the Holy Spirit would come and be with us. Where we could live as tabernacles where God dwells with us. Despite our sinfulness and our predisposition to evil and brokenness, he chooses to be with us. He wants, he longs to be with us. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. It encourages me. So with that encouragement, let's stand, let's worship, and then we'll finish with a blessing. Do you mind having a quick seat? Um, we've talked today about about Israel and their collective testimony. They have this shared story of God's greatness, the thing we're just singing here about. They've got this shared story about what he's done for them. They have this testimony as a nation. It's pretty powerful. And I believe, well, no, I don't believe, I know, because I get to hear your stories. There are stories in this room that tell of God's greatness. They point to His glory. They point to His care, His sovereignty, His power in our lives. And so that's the aim of this, this summer series where we're going to be sharing some of those stories. We're going we're to bring them to light. I honestly, I think the enemy loves to isolate, to separate, to keep in the dark the things that God is doing. And we're going to lay a little menorah of our own, I guess. And we're going we're gonna to start to expose God's stories. And, and my prayer, my hope, I'm already encouraged, but my, my prayer is it's going to be an encouragement to you. To know, to, first of all, to get to know each other a little bit better, but to know the stories and to see what God's doing. Because when that gets shared in this place, it becomes part of our story. That's one of our people. That's, that's part of our story. That's part of our testimony of God's greatness and His goodness and His provision. Uh, quick item of business, but it's tied to a testimony as well. Um, we're seeing some really neat things happen. We're seeing some really neat things happen at our Spanish services. And uh, they're, they're starting to grow. There are about 50 to 60 people on a Sunday. And um, so I, I just had a meeting with Edgar and Angelica. I'm like, how do we encourage you? How do we support you? And his list was very short. He says, one of the things that would be really nice is if the chairs on the sides got put away so they don't have to do it when they get here. <laughs> he's, he's got other things to do to prepare. They like to have the ones in the middle, but uh, they, they like to take away the options from the outsides. So here's the thing. If we can start to develop a habit, and I don't want to rush anybody out. So I don't want, like, don't tap people on the shoulder and say, can you get out of the way? I got to close these chairs down. But um, if you see an opportunity... Uh, we need stacks of 10. So that's my little business announcement for today. Um, but that will be a real blessing to Edgar and Angelica and the gang that meets at 1 o'clock. I have a blessing for you. And this is kind of summative for our journey through the book of Exodus. So I, I pray that you would receive this. May our brokenness... Oh, actually, it's on the screen here. May our brokenness lead us to humility. May God's grace 
invites you into his presence. And may the joy of knowing him stir you to share his grace and hope with others. Northridge, be blessed. We look forward to seeing you next week and throughout the summer. Um, but if you go on your little journeys, be blessed on your journeys. And we look forward to having you back when you're here. And take care. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.